Welcome, everyone. We have made it to another Monday Night Live. I'm uh, reaching out to you from Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, Paul is in an undisclosed part of the world, which may, may be something we'll find out later. But we've got Ian and Aaron with us, with us tonight. This is InsideTexas.com's Monday Live Chat. So please go ahead and throw in the chat as much as you can. Any questions you may have, obviously the Super Chats are going to get answered. But we're going to start by... Going to Eric, we'll start with you, Eric, with a question from the board. They want to know how much Sark employs Choice, arguably one of his best recruiters, on targets that are outside the running back room. I mean, yeah, Choice has Georgia. He's got part of Florida. Uh, any, he, a lot of the Deep South, uh, he's got a familiarity from Georgia Tech. And he's got carte blanche to really offer guys, you know, that, that if it's strategic for the staff. Uh, to get on a guy early, he'll he'll just offer. He's not a, they're not going to hold back. Um, he's very aggressive. He's he's got Sark's trust in that regard to to make offers. Sometimes it surprises others on the staff, but he he knows what he's doing. Uh, he's exactly what you're looking for in a volume recruiter. And running back coaches should be volume recruiters. It's something we mentioned a lot during the Stan Drayton days, where he was fo- focused almost primarily on running backs. Well, you're only recruiting three or four a year to sign one or two. Um, you know, Choice has his guys locked. That Choice knows who he's going to get in 2026, and it's still only 2025. Uh, so that frees him up to do a whole lot of recruiting other positions in a very populated area, densely populated area that uh, Paul has pointed out very well uh, in the Deep South. Eric, can, I, can I ask some more questions? But the uh, Kenny Baker is apparently a big Atlanta guy, right? Yes. So are they going to have overlapping territories in the South? You know, um, I think Kenny's probably gonna probably eventually probably take over at, at least on the defensive side of the ball. But you know, he's if a uh, choice has a running back in that area, he'll still have that. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what they're gonna do there, but obviously, Kenny Baker has to be unleashed on the defensive tackles in that region. They're, they're numerous, uh, relative to the rest of the country. Uh, so I expect him to be at least on the defensive side of the ball, but you know, I don't know, I don't know what he's like as a recruiter. You hear positive things, but. Really, you need to see a track record o- over time to really have a good feel for that. But I- I'm not sure what the plan is, but obviously he's going to be recruiting defensive tackles in the Deep South. Hey, Eric, I got a question for you. Is is Jeff Banks the biggest sort of jack-of-all-trades recruiter on the staff? Yeah, absolutely. He's he's in the South. He's uh, out West. Uh, he's been recruiting in Houston. He's recruits, obviously, his, his, his main territory is the I-20 corridor, you know, Duncanville, South Oak Cliff, DeSoto, Lancaster, all those, you know, those richly talented areas, uh, which is that that's enough to keep one man occupied alone. Uh, but then on top, we've got Mansfield, too. There's so much talent in Mansfield. Uh, but then you, you throw in the guys he's on in Houston. I was talking to a coach the other day at Decaney. Uh, Spring Decaney has two prospects. Texas is after Nick Townsend, a tight end, which is Banks position group. Uh, and then a wide receiver to Nook Hines. Um, and I was, that coach said, we love we love Jeff Banks at the school. He, he recruits Decaney no matter what college he's at. If he's at A&M, if he's at uh, Alabama, he's recruiting Decaney. Um, he's just very energetic. He's, you know, I, he, the guy, it's enthusiasm, Paul. And as you know, in recruiting, enthusiasm sells. Um, it, it's what sells on special teams, too. That's how he gets guys to run down the field 100 miles an hour. Um, so, yeah, he's he's the jack of all trades. And just because he hasn't landed a you know, five-star tight end other than, you know, Jatavian was kind of gifted to him when he arrived – uh, he hasn't he hasn't earned the reputation that I, th- I think he deserves as a great recruiter, a volume recruiter. Uh, but I think that talent is finally going to be there in this class as he's on Nick Townsend, who should be a f- high four star, uh, maybe even a five star. The dude's ridiculous. And then you got Kiardi Armstrong and Jasper. If he lands those two guys, 
uh, he'll he'll probably he'll be understood uh, in the way that he should be. Eric, is it just is it just enthusiasm, or what are some of the qualities about someone like Banks that makes them a recruiter that the coaches really want to be working with? Constant communication is huge. You can't you know you can't have other schools uh, giving giving them the narrative. You have to sell the, your school first before somebody else sells you for them. You, you're going to make a much better case than LSU or or A and M. Uh, yeah, constant communication, and you got to work the angles. You've got to learn who's in the decision tree. Uh, the kid's not going to make the decision on his own. It's going to be a parent, most likely. Maybe there's an influential coach. Sometimes there's a trainer. Uh, and then you've got to earn their trust. Then you start recruiting those people just like they're the player themselves. Uh, so that's a huge, huge point. I think when I hear that Banks is on a recruitment, even if it's a secondary role, I start to feel more comfortable about it because I know all the bases are going to be covered. Um, yeah, that, that's that's main one. Enthusiasm, communication, constant communication, just effort. It's a, it's a hustle game. With – I think with obviously with the recruiting and being advocates for the University of Texas, one of the questions that popped up in the message board, and I think this is this is a misconception that happens a lot, but it's worth talking about. How often do you as journalists feel like de facto recruiters when you're talking to recruits about Texas? I I understand that this is, again, probably a a question that you have to answer every now and again, but it's, it's worth revisiting. Well, you want to start with you, Paul, because we haven't heard your dulcet tones this evening all that much. Well, I, I'm not involved in recruiting very much, to be honest. So this is more for Justin and Eric. Uh, but I do know f- from talking to these guys, I, I think that they keep things very objective. Uh, and I think people would be shocked at the degree to which it's objective. Now, I don't know if that's the case for every site or every people, all the people that are contacting these recruits. But I think if you're perceived as pushing a narrative or an agenda, you're not going to be very welcome talking to that most recruits over time. Eric, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I want to do is earn a recruits trust. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I would never sell that school or any school uh, to a kid. That's, that's a huge no, no in my book. Now, you know, there's a lot of times you, you build a relationship with these uh, guys or a parent more likely uh, as I've gotten older, it's usually a parent that I'll get close to. And they start talking, you know, very candidly with you and they'll ask you questions. You know, they want to know what I know about the program. And that's, you know, I hate it when that happens because, you know, uh, a lot of time I'm going to tell them, you know, I'm going to tell them if they ask me a question, I'll give them an answer. I'm not going to give it to them unsolicited. You know, if they're asking me, hey, is this guy going to play? You know, uh, uh, maybe a, a depth chart question. You know, I'm going to shoot them straight because my number one thing is to be honest with them and and, uh, and have a strong relationship. Um, you know, some of the recruitments I've done the best on were ones where I was, you know, probably tested by the parents the most uh, asking for information. Uh, but I think my honest answers really earn their respect. And some of those people I'm still very close with to the day. But I mean, it's no secret. We want Texas to win. Everybody on this panel wants Texas to win. I want Texas to win because it was a, a school that uh, I, I grew up liking, at least starting in high school. Uh, and obviously it's, it's in my financial interest for Texas to win, but I still cover things. Honestly, I'm not, uh, I'm not afraid to call it like I see it, even if it, if I catch some stray bullets from the fans. Uh, but yeah, it's objectivity is a huge part of the, it's the whole thing to me. Elsie, you can tell, you can tell some of the sites where the, the writers are obviously sort of like, uh, ambassadors for the university that they often are the ones that get caught the worst on like flips and on right. recruiting news that breaks against their school because like sometimes the kid doesn't want to tell the coach and they certainly don't want to tell this like reporter you know that's like obviously wants to hear a particular kind of answer 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I see guys carrying waters for school all the time. I've seen it happen at Texas numerous times in the past. Uh, there's one guy in the market. I showed him text messages uh, backing up what I was reporting. Uh, and later that day, he went and reported the exact opposite of the truth that he saw on my phone. And, uh, you know, I never respect him again. But, yeah, you, you see you see him carrying water. Let's say some of the most outlandish things, you know, like Tom Herman's coming back or something like that. And, you know, it's not true. <laughs> Okay, we've got a uh, we've got a super chat from uh, Brett Nelson who's asking, should we expect an uptick in recruiting after the draft? Can Texas be one B to UGA in a year uh, in a year out in the SEC? I'm going to change our view here a little bit so we're not totally squashing our our friend Eric here. You want who wants to take this one on the on the uptick in the draft? We just squashed Eric even more. That's awesome. Oh, there we God, go. There he is. Uh, squashed me. As it should be. Uh, yes. Hey, Eric, you handle the first one. I'll handle the second. How's that? Sounds good. Um, you know, I think the, the the best thing is, you know, there's not going to be a downtick in recruiting that we've seen in the past after the draft. Man, I've seen these I've seen these coaching staffs put in a lot of hard work uh, in the early spring. They're building up momentum with with kids, and then the draft comes, and that Texas has you know zero zero people drafted, or maybe one or two. Uh, and it takes a couple of months to, to overcome that because that's a huge selling point for schools to negative recruit Texas. Uh, and in some cases in the past, it's been deserved. Uh, so, so number one, there won't be a downtick, fortunately. So that's a huge step. Uh, but I do think there's going to be a pretty, pretty solid uptick because, you know, I think they're going to have eight or nine guys drafted. Uh, I think they're going to have at least two guys drafted in the first round. Uh, they're going to have a ton of guys drafted uh, on Friday night in the second, in the second round. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful advertisement for the development Texas is having. And another thing to keep in mind is that, uh, I think four of those guys are juniors or uh, could have come back with one year. So Texas isn't just getting guys to the NFL. They're getting them there quickly. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And Brett, I want to thank you for the super chat. Uh, just to remind you, as Kelsey has adeptly pointed out, anyone who uh, does a super chat, your question will be privileged. Brett, you've done super chats, I think, several weeks in a row. So thank you. Thank Welcome. you for that. William is asking a question. Is oh, this recruiting? Elsie, oh, there was a second part to the question I was going to tackle. Oh, yes, please do. So can Texas be 1B to UGA uh, year in and year out in the SEC? Yes. Yeah, I think they can. I think Nick Saban uh, retiring opens up something for Texas. Obviously, Kalen DeBoer is going to be under a lot of pressure. It would be very interesting to see how much Kalen goes after his kind of guy, the OKG model, versus also satisfying recruiting rankings for the Bama fans who are going to be looking for any sort of drop-off, right? I mean, to a Bama fan, a number nine recruiting class is a disaster, Where, whereas for most you know, schools, that's a ticker tape parade. So that's going to be very interesting. And I think that was the main, uh, probably the primary number two competition, or at least it's been for Georgia recently. I think Texas can slide in there. LSU, always capable of putting together a crazy class. They're not always consistent, right, year in and year out, the way Alabama and Georgia have been. Uh, but yes, I think Texas can absolutely do that. Uh, I, I just think that this is going to be uh, – I, I think it's going to be a, a ripe opportunity, and I think it's going to build on a lot of the momentum that Eric mentioned. Specifically, I, I love that Eric mentioned the juniors because I think the, the guys who are really involved in recruiting day in and day out, like Eric and Justin will tell you, all of the high school players are, are bewitched by the idea of being a three-year player, right? Freshman year, I get some PT. Sophomore year, I'm a starter. I'm second team all-conference. Third year is my breakout. I go straight to the league and, and I'm, I'm set and it's, and they're looking at the first round or the second round. 
Uh, and because, you know, obviously you're going to make a lot of money if you're a first round draft pick. But the real money is getting to that second contract in the NFL, no matter your position. So I think that's the, the persuasive thing. And, and and frankly, that's the part of the draft. I don't know about y'all, but you guys tell us in the chat. But I only watch the first couple of rounds. I mean, I, you know, I kind of have it on in the background and I look up, but I, I'm not really watching the rest of the draft. I might have it on in the back and, you know, I, I don't really pay attention. And I think the recruits are the same. I think they watch day one and day two. How many recruits say for the next three years, I'll be at the university of whatever, you know, it's, that's what they say the next three years. They're not saying the next four years. They're not saying the next five years. They're not going to redshirt. Hell no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's the way they look at it. So Texas is going to have a good selling point on, on that one. At Kansas state. They're like, I'll be spending the next seven years. At, yeah, you're right. Who are you? The next six years, four in Provo, two in, in Somalia. Right. The, uh, one of the questions about, again, going back to the sec is, are, we, are you expecting different challenges? I'm rephrasing this a little bit in this recruiting cycle. Should we expect different challenges than past seasons now that we're we're looking at an AM that's a little bit reemergence, reemergence? And then LSU's, I was like, wow, I'm struggling with that one. Now LSU's firing. I'll take it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm covering this a lot on the site as we start to see the personality and identity of this uh, recruiting cycle take shape. Man, it's going to be a fist fight, a knife fight, whatever you want to say. It's, um, you know, you've got LSU's got the number two class in the nation. They've got the number one player in the nation committed. They've got one of the top running backs committed. They've got DeCorian Moore, who Texas wants uh, from Duncanville. Um, they're off to a very good start. Um, and this is a lot of these guys are from out of state. You know, they're going to rack up in state. Uh, so LSU is going to be difficult, and they're coming after a lot of Texas kids. Uh, they're going to be quite a few battles uh, with them, specifically to Corian Moore. Zion Williams is one to watch out of Lufkin. Um, OU is being extremely aggressive, easily the most aggressive team right now as far as pushing for immediate commitments. And so, you know, they, they picked off one they wanted that Texas wanted the other day in Ryan Foji, very talented offensive lineman, underrated offensive lineman out of Bridgeland. Uh, but, you know, that can backfire as well. So there's some other kids that they, they don't really like that approach. Uh, and so they're, they're rubbing some kids the wrong way, but they're, they're, they don't care. They're going to get some guys in the boat, too. And then you've got A&M. And every new staff gets the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we've seen it a lot of times at Texas. Charlie Strong got it. Uh, Tom Herman got it. Uh, Sark had to work for it, but he kind of got it there towards the end. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there's a lot of people that like AM more now than they did when Jimbo was there. Um, I, Landon Rink said he liked them more than, than when Jimbo was there. I've had other guys say we like that staff more than I thought. So he's doing a good job of getting AM in the door. I still think they're behind on uh, relationship building, and that's a, that's a very key element still. Uh, so I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to land any of the really top rated guys in Texas this cycle. Could be wrong on that. Some of that could come down to NIL. Um, but I do think that they're going to pick up a lot of very good in-state talent, uh, talented players uh, in this cycle. Just maybe not some of the top elite, top 10 guys. Uh, Texas is going to do pretty well with some of those. But, yeah, it's, it's very, very, very competitive. A lot of that's due to how talented the in-state class is. And also because El Chapo is gone. And so everybody's fighting for control of the, of the business. Right. Nick, that's Nick Saban, LC, if you weren't. Yeah, Nick Saban. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about this is something that you had on the board today, Eric. It's, we're talking about these recruitments, obviously, being in Texas. But let's talk about a couple of the recruitments that are happening in a really relative for Texas, very close radius to Austin. Yeah, I got uh, I, I wrote about five guys that are within four hours. And really, these guys are I mean, it's not just within four hours with any distance. These guys are five of the most important guys in the class. Zion Williams, big defensive tackle out of Lufkin. 
Uh, Bo Davis is working hard on that one at, uh, for LSU. Um, I think Texas still has the inside track, but it's going to be a battle for sure. Um, 6'4", 300-something pound defensive tackle. Basically a little bit better version of DeAndre Robinson, who Texas lost at the last minute in 2024. Uh, he's really, for me, he's a must-get in the cycle uh, because I, I, I lean towards AM on DJ Sanders. Uh, Dorian Brew, cornerback out of Conroe. Uh, well, I mean, he's, he might be, I think he might end up being a safety. He's a big kid, 6'2", 200 pounds. Uh, that's the same size as some linebackers Texas is recruiting right now. Um, you got to watch LSU. His dad ran track at LSU. Got to watch Ohio State. His mom ran track at Ohio State. Um, USC's a dark horse. Lincoln Riley's doing well in that recruitment, but I don't, I think they'll fade towards the end. Um, I, I have Texas having a chance in that one. L'Oreal Sarkeesian is kind of Texas's secret weapon. Uh, she's bonding really well with, Dor uh, with Dorian's mother. Over track. They've got a lot of uh, similarities in that regard. Uh, Michael Fasusi, man, there's some really good offensive tackles in this class, and Texas is trailing for at least two of them, maybe all three of them. Uh, I think Michael Fasusi would be the most likely uh, out of Louisville. He's just the next in the line of that, you know, Kelvin Banks sort of uh, Brandon Baker that they got last year. You know, he can play left tackle. He's got significant upside. Uh, Texas is all over that one, but they've got a lot of work to do. And then Riley Pettijohn, uh, Four or five star li uh, linebacker out of uh, McKinney, uh, very athletic, decent diagnostics for the guy that's more on the athletic side of uh, of the bargain. A lot of those athlete linebackers don't really see it, don't really see the game all that great. Uh, they have to be coached up. I think Riley sees it pretty well. Texas is the leader there. I think Texas is going to get him. Uh, Texas has a good shot for all five of these guys. It's probably not likely that they'll sweep all five. DeCorian Moore is probably going to be the toughest to pull from LSU. Uh, Duncanville wide receiver. I don't know if I mentioned him. Uh, yeah, so that's that's really the five. They get all five of those, man. They're, they're off to the races with this uh, class. One thing that we were discussing beforehand too, and this will this will go to Paul. Was this something that you wrote about earlier about the idea? And and I think we even touched on this subject last week. Was the idea that Texas is no longer really the circled game, especially when they're moving to the SEC? And I, I think it would be good to elaborate on that a little bit if you can. Yeah, I mean, to me, the most persuasive data point on that is that 11, you know, there's a professor at Memphis who did a survey amongst collegiate fan bases and 11 different schools said they consider Texas their primary rival. 11. And the next highest was three. Right. So I can, I think we can all put our heads together and come up with those 11. <laughs> and I think <laughs> almost all of them were in the big 12 and uh, Texas was circled and you know, look, it's it's a, it's not a secret, and Ian could probably elaborate on this a little bit after my answer, but uh, Big 12 staffs were not only prepping Texas in August and April, but they were taking – they were stealing weeks of other games and prepping Texas, you know, three weeks out. They've got Iowa State, and they're doing a Wednesday period on Texas stuff. Um, I mean, that's that's just not something that happens with, with other schools. And – a big part of that was the fact that the Big 12, frankly, had kind of modest ambitions, right? I mean, that's that's why you can do that, because your season is made going eight and four and beating Texas, right? And all of your, your fundraising is built around it. Your season ticket packages are built around hosting Texas, right? It's, it's everything. And now, is Texas still going to be a big deal? Absolutely. It's, it's a big game when we, we when Texas comes to town playing anybody. But when you're already also playing Georgia, LSU, I mean, Texas is not circled. You can't circle Texas. You've got all these other games. And frankly, you've got real rivalries, 
you know, we're not Georgia's rival. And, and I know there's some people that tried to respond to my, my article saying, oh, you know, Texas, uh, we're big, bad Texas, and we're circled by everyone. I mean, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We're, we're not circled for Georgia. You know, that's it's a big game for them, but they also got to play Bama. They got to play LSU. They got to play these other schools. They got to play, uh, you know, Florida, where they have an authentic real rivalry. You know, the, the world's biggest outdoor cocktail party, all that stuff. Uh, you know, old, old Mississippi State would love to beat us. You know who they'd like to beat more? Ole Miss. Ole Miss, Lane Kiffin. Yep. So that's a unique circumstance. Now, is Arkansas still going to be sky high for us? Sure. I mean, Sam Pittman's going to be coaching for his job. AM, Elko understands what's at stake for that game. They'll do whatever they need to do. OU, that'll be interesting. And I'm curious to hear Ian's thought on this as well. But OU is historically, whether it was Bob Stoops or Brent Venables, they have historically worked Texas quite a bit in the offseason, right? And and sometimes to their detriment, but often the Big 12 schedule didn't punish them for doing that. I think the SEC schedule will punish them. I think I think if they don't prep Auburn and they try to steal extra Texas periods, I think it's going to bite them in the butt. And, and frankly, I think it bit them in the butt this year. So, Ian, do, do you have any thoughts on that one, uh, just sort of broadly on any of this stuff? Yeah, I, I have a couple, couple of notes there. I think you're right. I think it's, it's, I mean, it's very similar to the Michigan Ohio state deal. We're like for years and years, like when it was like Bo Beckler and Woody Hayes in the 10 year war, they used to call the big 10, the, the big two and the little eight. Right. Like it was very feasible for those schools to just hammer each other and not have to worry as much about the other games. And they're still like that. Honestly, we'll see if that changes at all. If they draw like a, an Oregon or a USC the week before. Right. Um, another thing about the SEC on top of that, beyond the fact that they have these their own marquee games that to them are every bit as important as the Red River Shootout, if not more. And they think their game is nationally more important than the Red River Shootout, is what I'm saying. Um, is that the coaching in the SEC is not as good at times as it was in the Big 12. It's much more of like a talent accumulation league a lot of times than a like really high level coaching. Like there's not as many Mike Gundys. There's not as many Bill Snyders, you know, um, like when Tennessee started running the Art Browse offense a couple of years ago, I was breaking it down in the Substack America's war game, everybody. And uh, I was shocked by some of the tactics that some of these like famous coach, SEC defensive coaches we're using to try to stop this offense. And I was like, guys, like, I mean, usually this is not true at all, but I could have given them some notes that would have actually been helpful. It was like just embarrassing stuff. Even Saban the uh, year before last just had just an atrocious game plan. It was like, you, you guys look like you've never watched a team play this style before. Um, you know, in the big 12, that would just virtually never happen. So that's another that's sort of another layer wrinkle to that to that conversation. Hey, another thought too, Ian, and I know you're aware of this. Um, people don't know this, but Big 12 staffs would crowdsource Texas. And I don't mean the staff for one school. I mean Baylor would be talking to Tech, yeah, talking to uh Kansas State would be talking to, you know, uh, you know, a freaking, you know, West Virginia. 
And they're talking about, hey, how did you guys handle it when you played? How did you guys do this? Hey, this is what we're thinking of doing. Hey, did you guys notice that we did this and it was effective? And I mean, that is not going to happen. <laughs> Auburn's not getting on the phone with Bama and like, well, how are you guys going to prep Texas this week? I mean, it's, it's not happening. They all have too much rivalry. They hate, all hate each other too much. And, and frankly, they just have bigger ambitions. You know, the top schools in the SEC, their ambitions are national and the Big 12's uh, ambitions were regional. So Ian's exactly right. I think that the Big 12 is a more vibrant X's and O's league. Uh, but I think also we're going to play much better athletes week in and week out. I mean, even when you play the so-called off teams in the SEC, you know, you'll see years where Mississippi State's D-line has like three NFL guys. You know, it's just yeah. that, that didn't really happen in the, in the Big 12. No, do you not. guys do you guys think Alabama just got more tougher, tougher to defend, huh, with uh, with DeBoer? Like he's going to elevate that aspect of the – uh, uh, there's no replacing the GOAT, but, I mean, he's going to elevate that aspect of the conference, don't you think? Well, he needs an OC, right? Quarterback, too. Is, yeah, the quarterback. Good. I mean, he's got the quarterbacks on the roster. They're just inexperienced. Well, he, he brought in the guy from Washington that was in the 2023 class, his arch, um, yep. and that's why Julian Sain, uh transferred out to Ohio State. So he's going to have a guy that's got at least a year under his belt. And, then you know, I don't think he can replace Jalen Milrow in year one. That, that locker room would probably revolt. Yeah. Hey, Ian, did you have any – I mean, I, I guess we should talk a little bit about the elephant in the room. I know where this is a Texas and college-focused podcast. Did you have any takeaways from the Super Bowl or any that would be broadly applicable in football in general, you know, even to Texas, or just, just the Super Bowl in and of itself? Anything you saw that was interesting to you? Well, something I wrote on today was uh, it, it's more obvious for us, having watched a million Big 12 shootouts for the last 10 years, that I thought – I actually texted Paul about this a couple of weeks ago, but he didn't respond. Wow, he's like that. I'm surprised he used the phone number. It's amazing. You got to get that tan somewhere. New phone. Who this? He's going to block me if I keep it up. Uh, the 49ers defensive roster is like super invested in the defensive line and having pass rushers, so which works really great in the regular season because they'd build a lead. They'd run the ball. You, you, the clock would be running out on you. You'd have to throw the ball, and then you'd be facing this defensive line loaded with pass rushers. But the Chiefs didn't panic. The Chiefs didn't get knocked out of the game. And uh, the Super Bowl is exhausting because the energy is so intense. The halftime show is extra long. And you just see over and over again, it's part of why the Super Bowl routinely uh, ends up being such a good game in the fourth quarter is that the, the it's like the Big 12, the pass rushers, you lose the legs. And I, I think the 49ers are fundamentally flawed by being overly reliant on their defensive line in pass rush. I think the better championship model in the NFL is to invest more of that into your secondary and being able to create matchups on the back end. That's how Belichick did it. I, I think the Ravens do that to some extent. Or, or just being able to manufacture pressure without having one or two pass rushers that can get tired and then you're cooked. Um, and so, yeah, Mahomes beat him. Also, what's up with the what's up with the 49ers two years in a row? They don't know how to defend the zone read. Eric Paul, speak up for this Shanahan guy of yours. Yeah, Manny Diaz has been consulting. Apparently, I don't know. I, I think once you have your musical act at halftime on roller skates, everything is up. Everything's up for question. As I was watching it in a bar, and I heard this dude exclaim, "Damn, Usher on roller skates!" 
and he was uh, Paul in a bar, huh? Wow! All right, so I we know this we was, uh, a designated driver. I, so, I, the chat is making me laugh here, Elsie. I understand. I understand. And you know what? There's a lot of facts. I mean, let's just let the people see what's happening here. Paul is get, being put on blast. Paul's like the neighbor in uh, in Christmas Vacation. You know, they're, they're like modern. With Julius <laughs> Dreyfus, <laughs> like they've got their, their three-quarter zip merino wool jogging suit. Todd. <laughs> What her husband's name? Todd. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. By the way, Horrible Bosses was on last night. That's a really underrated movie. It's very oh, good. it's absolutely underrated. Yeah, they okay. they killed that. So, Ian, when you are, I don't know if you guys want to talk about this. I was going to talk about low back tattoos, specifically Eric's, and why you went with a dolphin. Is there any way that you any way you'd like to elaborate on that, Eric? Let us know why you went with the dolphin instead of like a muskrat. <laughs> oh man, how do I have a comeback for that? I mean, you can't be putting it on the Aztec sun, actually. I've seen oh, it. so so sorry about that. Sorry about that. Well, uh, you you won't remember it. Uh, there was a guy named Deadfisher. Paul will remember him. Maybe Ian too from the the yeah. Barking Carnival days. He said I had the a chest tattoo that looked like the hood of a Firebird. <laughs> 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 oh, I still laugh about that sometimes. Not inaccurate. <laughs> oh, man. Tramp uh, stamp, man. I've covered a few, though. <laughs> Ian, is there anything? So let's uh, just real quick. Is there anything specific that you saw? Because the reason I'm bringing this up is because, boy, do you love hero ball. It's your favorite thing in the world. You love a quarterback that totally breaks down the system that he's in and just wins the game on his own. We've discussed this at length. So is there anything in particular from the Chiefs and what they did on their last drive that you would love to see yours and, and Hero Bowl? Well, let me let me first specify. I like quarterbacks that can make a, adjust their decisions live and not have to rely on the coordinator dialing it all up for them. So be that improvisation or at the NFL letter, level, what's much more reliable is being able to make an audible or a check. Like a, a Mahomes can do it all. Uh, as for viewers, I I don't know if viewers. I feel like viewers needs to watch less Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> I feel like he, he's got a similar ability to like throw the ball from a million different arm angles, and like move around and throw the ball that way. And it's like that's great. I'm glad you can do that. That may help your career a lot but he really needs like footwork and like basic timing and like much more boring elements of quarterback play or things that. Okay. So like, with that, who do you yeah. want yours watching? Who's the guy that you're like, let's have viewers watch hours of this guy's tape. Tom Brady. Okay. That'd be, <laughs> Is there anybody that we may have heard of another quarterback? <laughs> um, Could you put someone more on the radar? Yeah. You know, well, nobody that. retired. Matt Stafford is actually really similar to yours in a few regards. Okay. Yeah, Stafford has a similar uh, cannon arm and ability to throw from different angles. Um, I mean, every answer I'm going to give is going to sound, that's probably the, like the, the most like boutique answer. I, other, I mean, Aaron Rodgers, right. Um, Kirk Cousins, maybe a little bit. Kirk Cousins stays relatively healthy for not being that big. And Ewers is not very big, and I don't know how big he's ever going to be. 
So maybe watch Kirk Cousins and how he keeps himself upright for most of the games in a season. That might be useful. Do you have a thought on that, Paul? You know, it's wild. I just looked it up because I wanted to guess it in my own head. Kirk Cousins is 35. Yeah. Not surprising to anyone. I thought I thought he was like 29 or something. That's good living, man. That's all yeah. that is. It's just good living. Good living and freaking NFL contracts, and he's got his own personal masseuse and all that sort of stuff. Trey's yeah. bringing some heat against these 49er people. He wants to know why the 49ers offense looked so familiar in the third quarter when they couldn't get a first down. Yeah, that was – well, I mean, honestly, that, that was a dominant defensive performance on both sides of the ball. It was just a question who was going to get worn out first, and I think Ian nailed it. Um, Bel- Ian and I are both reading a book right now on Belichick, which actually is, is quite good, especially the first half of the book. And um, one of the things Belichick – when they lost one of their Super Bowls, one of the things he talked about was really regretting not having active activated another defensive lineman. Yeah. Because he said people don't realize how much the Super Bowl for one, they're not going to call holding a lot, which you probably saw Joey Bosa get get uh strangleholded a few times. It was like a Ted Nugent cover band out there. You got they got Trent at a bad time. Yeah. And, and bad. that was a really bad hold though. Belichick was saying that he wished he'd had one more defensive lineman active that you could put in late in the game and then really make a difference with your pass rush because, you know, these look, there's parody in the NFL and I know it's a cliche, but these teams are, are much more similar than they're different. And honestly, they had really good staffs and weeks to game plan and they both knew the other's vulnerabilities. And I thought the defensive performances overall were pretty dominant. And uh, ultimately, it was just going to be which defense wore down first. I think Ian nailed it. Uh, as far as anyone knew, I had zero inspiration for that nugget of wisdom, and it had come entirely unbidden from my own mind and not from the book I had been reading last week. So thanks for uh, – I didn't know you guys started a book club. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> we we well, read Snow Falling on Cedars. Oh, wow. All right. Yeah. I was just going to write these down. Is there a and good – While we're reading the Joy Luck Club. Okay. All right, it's just your specific genre you're sticking in, which is nice. What, what is the best? What's your favorite book that you've read about football? Uh, so actually, that's a great book. And I think if you're a University of Texas grad, you should read it because it's written by one of our alums, a guy named William Morris. It's uh, called so The Courting of Marcus Dupree. Say that sorry. again. I thought you were going to say Fly Over Football by Ian Boyd. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my second favorite book. I do own it, uh, but uh, – no, I even wrote an Amazon review, but uh, yeah, it's called The Courting of Marcus Dupree by Willie Morris, who's written in the 1980s. It's about Marcus Dupree, who's the most rec- one of the most recruited uh, athletes in the history of college football. He ended up signing with OU, but he was favored by Texas. He's a Mississippi guy. And the, and the book is about more than just football, which is, I think, you know, the best books about football are about more than just the game. So I recommend that, particularly if you have a little bit of a literary bent or you just like the socio-cultural aspects of it. But it also gets into the, the aspects of recruiting. And, man, things have not changed much, y'all. It's yeah. crazy. Although back then, you had recruits literally being grabbed and sequestered in hotel rooms before signing day so people couldn't get to them, <laughs> which, which Texas tried to do with them. That uh, Actually, that happened a couple of years ago. Texas had to stick somebody in a hotel for a weekend. Well, I'm not Texas, but yeah, somebody. Yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This was over 40 years ago, and the same stuff's happening. 
Friday Night Lights is a good one for that same reason you mentioned, sort of that social commentary, the the, the yeah. picture they paint of the landscape. Hey, H.G. Bissinger turned out to be a gigantic weirdo, but still a, a great book. Yeah. I, I met that guy. He's yeah, he's a he's got his things. He's a he's got a leather fetish. Didn't didn't have that on my bingo card. <laughs> it's a quality product. It's a, it'll last. Build a nice patina. Something from you, Ian. Well, I've only read half of this book because it's massive, um, but it's called Playing Through the Whistle, Steel Football in an American Town, and it tells the story of, I'm going to mispronounce the town, actually, I've only read Aliquippa, 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 it's like a Western PA outside of Pittsburgh, steel town, and it, te- it chronicles the, the town's story is like a... Uh, steel mill focused town built by a private family and then overlaps with the story of their high school football team over like a century. And they've got like Ditko went there. Um, Terrell Revis. Terrell Revis. um, A bunch of other, like an absurd number of football players over a century's time. And you get kind of like this snapshot of uh, American, you know, industrial revolution modernization juxtaposed with this like cultural phenomenon of high school football. But I'm only like, I'm only like halfway through it. It's, you know, it's quite a, quite a volume. Have you guys read the hidden game of football? I just picked this up today. Mm. I'm not. I was on, cause I'm in Reading, Pennsylvania. They had a Barnes and Noble here. Y'all oh, wow. like books and everything. Wow. It's it crazy. I just went in and I got a book. Didn't even come in a box. It's crazy. All right, y'all. How are we feeling? Accomplished? We need some more questions, huh? We need some more questions. What do you got? I got a text message from one of my investors. um, Asking me to resign. Our cash cameras look bad. Um, Let me see. It It looks like a bad. Everybody's in soft uh, focus like a bad porno. Well, First of all, very, when you're not very good looking, that's probably a requirement of being. I take uh, I take offense to that. Well, well, you're on the road. Paul's on the road. I don't have a good excuse for why my camera is deficient, other than mine's pain in the ass to hook up. Ian, Sandman has asked this question twice, and I think he really wants to get down to some of the trauma that you've experienced in life, Ian. And this might be a catharsis for you. So please, if you wouldn't mind, tell us which Texas memory is the most painful for you. And why? Focusing on the why. Uh, 2001 loss to CU, 2008 loss to Texas Tech, or the 2009 loss to Bama. You only get those three. But if your trauma deviates from that, please feel free to dig into that. Hmm. (laughs) 2008, hands down for me. I mean, I... Yeah. 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 Um... I think Bama does. Uh, I may have just cut out. Y'all still there? I, I'm, I'll say Bama because uh, Colt McCoy getting knocked out, and you just knew that was it for his career. It's hard though, because like you can look back now and know that the 2009 loss to Bama killed the program for like a decade. So it's 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 hard not to have that looking back, that awareness. Colorado, like Colorado, you, at the time, but I look back and I'm like, 
Miami would have destroyed Texas. Like this. So I, I call those mercy killings. I got, I've got strong feelings on this one. This is a painful one. Uh, the 2008 Tech game, I was watching with a good friend at someone's house in Palo Alto. When the ball, when uh, late in the game, they threw the ball and Gideon looked like he had it. I jumped up and ran out of the room. Oh, no. Like, hook him. Like, yes. And then someone was like, come back. Come back. Yeah. And I was like, fired up and like high-fiving people. And he's like, he dropped it. And I was like, the ball? <laughs> he's like, yes. The opportunity, the same thing, Paul. <laughs> and then the, the 2009 Alabama game, I was there. And I tell you what, I hate to be that guy. But if you weren't there – you don't realize how unready Alabama's defense was for, for Texas. and Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, they, they just – it looked like it was going to be an absolute route. Jack – I mean, Jordan Shipley would have had 250 yards receiving if Colts yeah. were healthy. And, I mean, as it was, he had like 150. I mean, they had 230-pound Mark Barron running around at safety just getting smoked. And Colt McCoy would have torn them apart. But – Game plan matters, and uh, if you run your quarterback on the goal line at Marcel Darius, it's ain't gonna ain't gonna work out real well. <laughs> Eric, you mentioned uh, Bo Davis targeting smaller defensive tackles before Sark redirected him to the large human principle. Uh, do you know anything about Baker's preferences? I'm are they are they are we sticking with the large human model here? Yeah, you know, him coming from the NFL, he's probably going to just want extremely talented guys that are NFL players. But I think it's, you know, it's it's largely going to be out of his his uh, hands. I think Sark knows what he wants. He wants guys like Sadir Mitchell. That doesn't mean they won't take a guy like, you know, Byron Murphy was a, a little bit on the smaller size as far as uh, overall weight. Now, if you stood next to him, you know that he takes up a ton of space because he's so wide. And so they're looking at a guy like Floyd Gidry that would pair well, actually pair quite well with uh, Zion Williams, who we talked about earlier, or maybe a bigger uh, guy like DJ Sanders. Uh, so they will take him, but their smaller guy is still going to be big. Uh, so Paul, you know, basically what happened in 2023 was they got Sadir Mitchell beat Georgia for him. Uh, and then the rest of the guys that they were looking at didn't really fit the bill that what Sark was looking at. So he vetoed a couple guys that they probably could have uh, gotten commits from. One ended, up, one ended up at Arkansas, another guy ended up at U of H kind of, that tells you a, a, quite a bit right there. Uh, so I'm not sure what his preference is going to be, but, you know, um, and, and he hasn't really been able to recruit whatever that would be anyways. He was at right. uh, you know, Western Kentucky. You're not going to get the pick of the litter there. Uh, but, yeah, I think uh, I think this state actually sets up well for him. He should be able to, to do well despite being new. Of course, it helps to have, have Texas, and they've got proof of concept both, uh, you know, with where it matters a lot uh, with NIL, with, you know, Tavondre and both Byron were, you know, compensated quite, quite fairly. So, uh, I think he's going to do well, but yeah, they're going to have to get big guys. They're going in the SEC. You got to be able to stand your ground and anchor against the run. You seemed pretty confident, Eric, about the twenty-five class. Uh, obviously, early days. You know, it looks like Ohio State, LSU, OU are pretty confident this early as well. You want to elaborate on on maybe why you're feeling more confident than than this person thinks you should? Um, well, I mean, it's a really good state. Uh, state. Uh, crop of talent. I mean, it's, uh, you know, pr pretty much every position uh, outside of a quarterback is down. They don't need that guy as long as they have KJ Lacey. Um, you know, so all these, you know, tight end is loaded. Wide receivers always loaded. There's a lot more defensive tackles, linebackers and edges than normal. Um, and, and, you know, you always feel confident that Kyle Flood is going to put together a pretty good offensive line class. So, 
yeah, I think it's just going to be a matter of who the bodies are. You know, uh, they're going to have some losses, of course. Those those schools that are mentioned here are are, uh, are recruiting very well. Ohio State's obviously fell into a, a giant pile of cash, uh, as evidenced by their haul in the uh, in the transfer portal. LSU is obviously on the upswing. I'm not sure if OU is going to um, be top five when it's all said and done. You know, they've got a, a season in the SEC to navigate. They, they, I think that's why they're being so aggressive, trying to get as many guys in before the season as possible. Uh, but, but Texas has a lot of tailwinds. You know, Texas is always going to be at the top of mind of in-state kids. Even when they're down, Texas gets a fair shake for most of them. And now they're on the upswing uh, in an in-state class that's, that's uh, quite talented. It's, it's a good time to be optimistic about Texas recruiting. That doesn't mean they're going to land everybody. They're going to have some bad beats for sure. This is a question for Paul and Ian. Oh. I love this question for both of you. I'm glad Justin's not on this one. <laughs> Was Greg Davis an underrated as a Texas offensive coordinator? Uh, do you guys want to flip a coin on who gets to go first on this one? Go ahead, Ian. <laughs> quality television. I'm gonna this say is where that. we did that meme, that that Greg Davis meme, where uh, DJ Monroe's on the sideline and everybody's <laughs> just hurt, but yeah, third, yeah. third and five, and everybody's short of the sticks. Now, Paul, <laughs> Paul was much less forgiving of Greg Davis than than I or others. Um, I I I liked that Davis. He definitely taught Vince Young a lot. I think there's sort of this mythos. See, Paul's already. I think there's this mythos that like Vince Young was uh, hamstrung by Greg Davis. And I, I look back and I watch those old films and the Vince Young in 2005 was worlds better in the passing game than he'd been in the previous years. And they, now they, they adapted the scheme to help him out in that regard. But part of the reason they did that was because they didn't have Cedric Benson anymore. Like they, they were trying to maximize Cedric Benson. I thought he did a pretty good job of developing quarterbacks, putting quarterbacks in good position to have success. And also like Mac Brown would just like throw the best players in the state at him with like, without any like real cohesion or like vision to it and be like, well, Greg, I, I want you to make it work. And uh, we're, we're going to feature the tailback this year. And it just, it would change wildly year over year. So within those constraints, I think he did pretty good, but he, I mean, he's not, Kyle Shanahan, he's not going to go down as a genius. But Paul, you can can throw in some of your critiques if, if you no, like. No, I, I thought you hit the good points well. And also, I don't hold it against Greg Davis at all, what happened in 2010. Now, that was forced upon him by Mac yeah. Brown, where Mac Brown's lesson from the Bama game was, you know, the power run is the way to go. You'll Greg, around Chris Whaley. Yeah. Yes. You'll <laughs> around a defensive tackle. He ordered Greg Davis to basic, and Greg Davis was kind of resentful about it. You could tell the way he he called the game and, and did it because he was sort of trying to prove a point to Mac, like this doesn't work. This isn't our identity. This isn't what we've trained these guys to do. And to Ian's point, Mac Brown didn't have a coherent philosophy of offense. His his philosophy of recruiting was sign guys and give them to Greg Davis and tell Greg to figure it out. And uh, so I think those are the positives. I think he also is knowledgeable about football. He certainly was a good quarterback developer as well. That said, the the constant squatting and peeing against OU and Dallas is unforgivable. I mean, those game plans are as about as embarrassing as anything I've ever seen from a football coach. And uh, they're they're cowardly. 
It's horrendous. And some of that was Mac Brown energy. I mean, he, he talked his team into losing several times in, in that game. Um, and, and the, and Greg Davis partook in that, but schematically those were horrific game plans. They were embarrassing. And everything he tried to do was the opposite of what you should be doing. You know, he thought he was protecting Chris Sims and major Applewhite by running the ball twice and then making it third and 12 and then throwing with a max protect to only a two receiver route. And it was literally the opposite of what he should be doing against that OU defense. You should have been going five wide, right? You should have been going YOLO and coming out, throwing the ball. And, you know, so it's hard to forgive that. And I always resented that Davis would drop 63 on North Texas and three on OU and then say, we're averaging 33 a game. And it's like, Mm. we need to talk about medians and modes and, and ranges and all that. But anyway, that that's my thought on Greg Davis. I mean, I ultimately he did do some really good things at Texas. And when he, when he had, when Greg Davis was cooking with the kind of offense he wanted to running, wanted to run in like 2008, and that was, that was fun to watch, man. It, that was good stuff. However, uh, there were some other stuff that, you know, those OU games are unforgivable. I and mean, it really cost Texas multiple Big 12 title games, multiple championship, uh, at least appearances. And I, I always kind of had some resentment about that. Better uh, better play designer than play caller. I agree with that. Except for the multiple three-yard outs on third and seven. Going back to this one, Eric, we talked a little bit about Ohio State. What does Ohio State specifically have to offer that Texas doesn't? I mean, Columbus versus Austin, is it just NIL? What is the, what's the major selling point there? You know, the last time they won less than 10 wins outside of uh, COVID was 2012, I think, or 2011. They've had, uh, that's 11, not just double digit, 11. And most of those are 12 or 13. Um, so that, that, that's a pretty short answer there. And that really, that goes for the whole, whole, uh, whole century they've had what three three teams three teams less than 10 wins i think the entire century uh so it's winning and they've got to put a lot of guys in the nfl i think they're the the school with the third most amount of guys in the nfl that that's going to recruit kids too uh they're one of the few schools uh outside of the sec footprint that can recruit that area uh because of the winning tradition and the uh, the development that they've had the nfl development so yeah that's a they're a tough one when when texas is going against them um, you know, you've got to, you got to definitely pay attention to, to Ohio state, you know, they've, and now they're going to get their mojo back and, and crush Michigan, uh, with all the changes they've had. So, yeah, I think, uh, what are they? Number two, right. Number two in the nation. I think that that came out recently, uh, by, I think on three already did a two soon one, Georgia one, Oregon, for some reason was three and then Texas four. Uh, so they're, you know, they're going to win again. <laughs> this is, I know that, uh, Paul has a hard out the tanning salon, but let, I would like to talk a little bit about um, do we think Sark is going to give Quinn more autonomy at the line of scrimmage? Does that, does that fit into to Sark's uh, MO? I, so I actually, I think Quinn Ewers benefits from certainty. I think he's really good in like one and two read constructs. Uh, I, I mean, look, any veteran quarterback is going to benefit from just more reps, more game time, you know, he's going to be a starter with 20 something starts under his belt, right? By the time he leaves Texas, he's going to have more than 40 starts. And uh, that's, that's good for his progression. And we've seen year three sort of be a big year for, for many Texas quarterbacks and many college quarterbacks. So I think that's going to be huge for Quinn. 
But I actually think Quinn benefits from certainty. And that's not a critique of him. You know, people, no, I mean, always, yeah. people always hold up the, the Peyton Manning thing as, oh, I, the real quarterback gets up there and audibles nine times. You know, Troy Aikman just liked to have a play call. And he liked to have a couple of options and know where the ball was going. And, you know, he was a pretty good playoff and big game quarterback as well. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And, and I think Sark understands that about Quinn. And, you know, I think Quinn will have more autonomy and probably more in terms of protections and maybe even audibling to the right run play, right? Stuff like that. Stuff doesn't, doesn't get a lot of press. But I think in terms of the passing game, I think Sark understands that Quinn is a guy who has who likes to have some certainty of where the ball is going to go, or at least a pretty clear progression of reads that he can get out of his hand quickly. I think that's Quinn at his best. What do you let think, Ian? Yeah, well, let me add, since they suggest that I'm a Quinn hater, let me let me just give him his, his flowers. Quinn, in every like big game Texas has played, Quinn has been dialed in. And like his worst big game was uh, the Oklahoma game this last year with the two early picks. And then he was like, what was he like? 22 for 23. No, he was 26 of 28 with a drop. Right. Every chance to win. He could have maybe won the game if they'd given him the ball in fourth down. I'm not trying to relitigate that or criticize Sark even, but, but it was, you know, so I, I mean, the kid is, the kid does some unbelievable things. Most of the criticisms of him are more like translating to the NFL than like, can this kid with his ability dominate college football games? Because we, it's clear that he can. He went into Tuscaloosa and burned it down. Okay, that's it, guys. That's all. That's all I got for today. Is is there anybody anything you'd like to add for Monday? Uh, hey, quick one from the chat. Actually, an interesting observation, and you hear this a lot. Does Quinn have the it factor that Colt McCoy had? Colt McCoy had the it factor when he started winning a bunch of games. No one thought Colt McCoy had the it factor when he was a sophomore at Texas. He threw 17 interceptions that year. And, in <laughs> fact, we were all begging for John Childs, if you'll recall. Yeah. Uh, so the it factor – happens after you've done stuff you know people weren't talking about tom brady's it factor until you know he'd won a couple of couple of super bowls you know for the patriots they weren't talking about his it factor when they took his picture at the combine with his shirt off so quinn Quinn has the respect of the team i think he showed a lot of grit he's earned that um so yeah i think that that's one of those things it's it's a it's it lags the wins to to truly be recognized for it but the number one thing is he has the confidence of his teammates uh and the respect of his teammates Really going back to how, how many changes he made, you know, a year ago, uh, you know, his physical changes, his mental changes. Um, yeah, I think he's, he's, he's definitely become a, a better leader. I, but, yeah, the it factor thing is kind of thrown around a little too loosely, I think. Well, thank you all so much for checking in with us today on our Monday Night Live. Appreciate Aaron, Aaron, Jesus, Ian, <laughs> Eric, and Paul for being here tonight. Is there anything that you would like to close with tonight, Ian? Uh, 